Hello, and welcome to The Writer's Co-op, a business podcast for freelance writers everywhere. We are your co-hosts. I am Wudan Gan. And I'm Jenny Gritters. This week on the podcast, we're recording remotely. (laughs) We're (laughs) addressing questions from our Writer's Co-op members. So we're going to try to do this in the middle of each season to make sure that y'all are getting the information on the topics that matter most to you. We got a bunch of really good questions, but we chose the ones that came up the most often and we'll be addressing those first and doing it all rapid fire style. So if your question didn't make it into the lineup, send us an email or tweet at us and we'll try to answer there. This should be fun. So one thing to note before we get started, we're recording this episode during the middle of the coronavirus pandemic and we're on Zoom because social distancing. But this podcast is meant to be an evergreen audio career handbook for freelancers. So we're not going to talk specifically about coronavirus here, although I do think it might come up in context. It's very applicable right now, but we're not going to focus on it. Right. And we also ran a live Q&A session recently about working as a freelance writer or editor during a pandemic. So if you're a Writers Co-op Patreon member, you get all those notes in our learning portal. Sweet. Okay. Let's dive into the questions. Okay. Yes. First up, conflicts of interest. We got two questions about this. The first one says, I'm a freelance journalist who wants to write a story for a large environmental NGOs magazine, but I'm afraid taking the assignment will hurt my journalistic credibility. Should I take the assignment? Hmm. And the second one says, if my internship plans for the summer don't work out, my plan was to work as a chemist for a pharmaceutical company I'd worked at before, then freelance on the side. I disclosed this to editors when pitching. I was told that's not a good idea and would be a conflict of interest and that I should work another job to prioritize freelancing. Thoughts? Jenny, I know you deal with this often in your work. So what do you think? So I do a lot of work for brands, as you all know, if you've been listening to this podcast, but I still do journalism as well. So my split is probably, I don't know, 60% brand work and 40% journalism most months. And the first thing I will say about this is that your answer to this question, I think is really individual because it's kind of an issue of ethics. So we're each going to be more or less comfortable with conflicts of interest. And I think it's important that you think through this and determine your own rule book when it comes to working for a company and then also producing journalism. I talk to college classes about this a lot and I actually encourage them to make a bullet pointed list or, you know, a paragraph about what their comfort level is with some of this stuff. So I personally have a few rules of thumb for navigation with conflicts of interest. And I think the first is that I always think about how the story I'm working on is going to appear. So for example, if you're writing something for a brand, but it's straight up sales content or marketing, I think that gets kind of dicey for journalism. So if I was developing sales copy for a brand, for example, I would definitely feel like I couldn't write about that brand in a journalistic context ever again because I was on their payroll. So for me, it feels a lot safer to develop editorial content. So straight reported journalism or blogs for a brand. For example, I do that kind of work for REI, but I wouldn't be comfortable working for them if they forced me to, say, include a specific product that they wanted me to sell or something like that in one of my stories. So they've never done that, right? But I also don't cover REI in my journalistic work at all because I'm on their payroll. So that's an important division for me. And second, I also try to keep a firewall between my brand work and my editorial work. And I do that by working on different topics. So a lot of my brand work is about the outdoors, whereas a lot of my journalism work is about psychology, 
psychological trends, some science stuff. So those are different enough that I don't often see an overlap. So back to those questions, I think for the person asking about NGO work, my perspective is that I would feel okay about that work, but it does depend on A, what the work is, B, what they would maybe ask you to compromise editorially. I do think a lot of good journalism is funded by external sources right now. So to me, it really depends on the specific project that you're doing for them. And would you be able to do good work in your journalism career and not write about that NGO? For the person who is thinking about working as a chemist, I'd also say to me that is probably fine. But again, it depends on the assignments that you're interested in taking as a journalist. If you can't write specifically about that pharma company that you're working at, is that going to be a problem for your career? Again, I think it's sort of like you're weighing all the factors here. So Dan, you do some work for biotechs too. How do you navigate that ethical line in your work? I definitely want to echo, you know, what you just said, Jenny, about weighing the costs and the benefits. I think about what a former freelancer said about this two out of three rule that she'll only take gigs if they fulfill two out of three criteria, prestige, pay, passion. And sometimes money trumps everything else, which is totally okay and totally fair. Oh, I really like that. That's a great, great rule. Yeah, it simplifies the decision-making for me a lot of the time. Sometimes it's terrible when all three are kind of good, and then I have a hard time saying no. Yeah. So my thoughts are, if writing for that NGO magazine is going to be a steady gig, then I might pick that over trying to pitch newspapers and magazines on environmental stories. And I think if your journalism is in a different subject area, from the brand or content work that you're doing, that's fine. And I would say my response is similar for the listener who's thinking about working for a pharmaceutical company. That income could provide welcome stability. But if you're in that case, be ready to not write about any stories about that pharmaceutical company, possibly pharmaceuticals overall or chemistry or anything that can be construed as a conflict of interest. If what you really want to write about is sports, like that's a balance that can work. And my other concern would be, you know, if you're just starting to freelance and if you're going into that with no other clips from an editor's perspective, I can see how that would be like a little concerning. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think also, you know, that stability piece here is really important to me. So if the gig is going to provide stability, I might be more willing to take it on. So I like that you mentioned that. But again, I think this is a totally like individual thing that you're going to have to navigate depending on how you're going to disclose your conflict of interest in the project. So Okay, let's go to the next question. We get a lot of asks about negotiation and money. So, Wudan, I think you can address this issue really well. So I think maybe you should answer some of these questions. So there are three that we're going to loop in here. So the first is someone asked, what services does Wudan charge $70 an hour for? And how did she negotiate this service? (laughs) (laughs) I love that they asked so specifically. Another person wanted to know about negotiating or renegotiating a rate if the scope is creeping mid-project. And then a third person wanted to know how you respond when a publication tells you that they can't change their standard rates. Let's talk a little bit about this. How do you decide what you want to say when you negotiate rates, Wudan, and what does that conversation look like? Okay, I'm going to handle this one question at a time. Okay. 
<laughs> this goes back to a lot of what we discussed in episode two about deciding how much to charge for your services. So to the person who asked me about my $70 an hour gig, I posted about that on Twitter and <laughs> that's why it's out there. Anyway, that's a fact checking gig. I've been fact checking for six years and counting. And for some context, my rate as a fact checker started at $15 an hour, which was how much I was paid as an intern. I always say as a freelancer, the only person who will give you a raise is yourself. So I've gradually been asking for more. And across the industry standard for editing is on the order of $50 to $60 an hour. Fact-checking is a mix of editing, fact-checking, and sometimes writing too. So I've really worked myself on negotiating up on that front. On negotiating rates generally, I ask for a higher rate when I think a publication can do a little better than what they offered. So the conversation usually looks something like this. The editor will come to me and say, for this story, we can do a rate of say $400. Does that work for you? And if I want to counter, I'll say, can you do 500? And then the editor might come back to me and say, we can't do that, but 450 will be doable for us. Will that work? And I always think about negotiating rates like haggling at a market in Southeast Asia. It's usually friendly banter. And when I think about negotiating rates with that frame in mind, it makes me a little less intimidated when it comes to negotiating for my own assignments. Also, if the price doesn't work for you at the end, you can always walk away. But I think there's generally no harm in asking. The question about scope creep, maybe this ties back to what I just said about negotiating, but I think an assignment with an editor is just an ongoing conversation. Keep them in the loop. The second you think the assignment is creeping, either in word count or focus, whichever makes you put in more hours and your pay structure won't allow you to be compensated accordingly, I would bring it up. I would say, don't wait until the story has published to ask whether or not you can be paid more. You can say earlier on, I'm noticing the focus of the story is expanding from what we originally agreed on. I'm super happy to put in the work. Can we amend the contract and project fee so it accurately reflects this? Anything to add to that, Jenny? Yeah, I do a lot of the same things with negotiations. So I just got done negotiating a rate for a product review, actually. It's probably a good thing to share here. So the editor came to me with an assignment, but the rate was low. And a lot of times people ask us, like, how do you know if the rate is low? Because they're not offering you hourly work. They're offering you a project fee. So I know that the type of assignment she offered me typically takes about 20 hours, right? And my usual rate for that kind of work is $50 an hour. So I would usually charge $1,000 for that project, but she had only offered me 600 to start with. So I told her I could do the project for 800 because it would mean getting baby swings to use in my house. It's a baby swing guide, (laughs) which would save my family money, right? We don't have to buy baby swings right now while I'm testing them. So I offered 800. We eventually landed on 700 together. We kind of met in the middle. So again, I think I take the same tack that Ludan does of thinking about it as, you know, like haggling in a market or something like that. I've also found, and I don't know if you think this is true, Ludan, but that a lot of places are willing to negotiate their standard rates depending on what the scope of the project is. So I usually try to ask. I think it's worth having the conversation, even if you're not 100% confident that they can change their rates because you can walk away if the rate is too low for you or you can take what they originally offered. So I've definitely been surprised before. 
To the question about negotiating mid-story due to scope creep, I, again, echo what Udan says about really trying to have that conversation before the hours start creeping. So generally, if I think a story is going to take me about 20 hours and I'm making $1,000 on it, that's a great rate. That's $50 an hour. But then I get to hour 23 and I realize I have 10 to 15 more hours of reporting work to do plus writing. I might approach the editor and say, Again, like what Dan said, listen, this is taking a lot more time or reporting than I expected. I can keep going, but I cannot unless I'm paid more. So what would you want me to do here? Do you want to compensate me for extra time or would you prefer that I stop my reporting now? So I'm usually talking to my editor throughout long stories like that where scope creep might happen, but it's always a conversation and asking for more money at the end has rarely ever worked for me, but it does work if it's happening in the midst of the project. Yeah, I think open communication is good generally. Like I keep pointing to all these dating analogies, Mm -hmm. you would want to keep the conversation going with somebody that knew who you're dating or the same person that you're dating. You want to, you know, have them know how your day is going. This is kind of the same thing with regards to how your assignment is going with your editor. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) Not to pull out the dating card, but okay. Next question. I think this is a good one. It says, I struggle to focus on one area in my writing because I'm interested in a lot of things, but I struggle to build a personal brand because my work seems or looks unfocused. Should I develop a focus or keep it broad? I feel like we get this question a lot and I like it because it's something that we both grapple with often in our work. So my answer, and it's probably going to actually be different from Mudan's answer, is that I have really benefited from being specific about what I do, which doesn't mean that I haven't changed things over time or that I you know, haven't reported on multiple topics. But when I started freelancing, I took anything that came my way. Like I was just like, all topics I write about, you know, like I can do this, I need money. But I think that diffuse branding actually hurt me. And I also noticed I wasn't as productive when I was working on stories about topics that I didn't like writing about. So my brand was kind of watered down and I was less productive, which ultimately isn't a great business decision. So when I decided to launch my company, I specifically defined it as being focused on the science of healthy living. So under that umbrella, I could write about psychology, the outdoors, fitness, mental health, science news, etc. And I started getting more assignments from editors once I defined that very specific area of expertise. Well, Dan, I want to hear your perspective because you write about a broad range of topics, but I also feel like you do have a sort of personal brand when it comes to your reporting. This is a great question because I struggle with this as well. So last summer was a real mind bender when I was working on stories about people who walked their cats on leashes, mountain goats dangling out of helicopters, <laughs> and then also a really deep investigation into police brutality against Alaska Native and Native American men. And I think the fun part of freelancing is getting to choose what stories you're investigating. Then as far as how I brand myself, I put a lot of that under independent journalist or magazine writer or science writer. And I think it's okay to change that brand depending on who I'm trying to build a relationship with or to give me a commission. Totally. Just from an outside perspective, Wudan also is really good at reporting. She has this sort of expert reporting and writing brand and style. And so 
I almost think for you and your skills are more your brand, right? Like your curiosity more than any mm-hmm. one topic. And I want to say that that's okay too. So I have also changed the topics I cover over the years. Like I have a child now, so I'm branching out into writing about parenting. So I also think you can be ever evolving with this. All right. Next up, we have some questions about pitching and finding work. This is what we get asked about the most, and we'll get more in depth about that in the future, but we wanted to give you a few thoughts today. Here are two questions, which we'll answer together. Number one, how long in words or sentences are your typical pitches for accepted stories? And number two, is it better to be fast when editors are getting swamped within an hour of posting a call or slow down and be thorough for a pitch that might have a better chance of getting accepted. Jenny, what do you think? Be concise. (laughs) I was an editor in a past life and editors just don't have time to read something long, right? Like I was getting a hundred pitches a week that I was reading. I was skimming to be perfectly honest with you, right? Like I'm, I'm looking for those key points. I'm looking for some samples of things you've written before, that sort of thing. So based on that experience, my pitches are typically, I would say like eight to 10 sentences max. Word count truly varies depending on how complicated the story is. I think some story pitches only need a couple sentences, like a breaking news piece, for example, or if I'm working with an editor I have worked with in the past, I'll send a little, hey, you know, are you interested in hearing more about X topic? That's just a couple sentences. Other stories definitely require more explanation, especially longer investigative pieces. So we do have a template in the Writer's Co-op All Access folder, the learning portal. It's a pitching template for the way that Udan and I both think about pitching. Yeah, I agree on what you're saying, Jenny. Keep it as short as possible. And it totally depends on the story who you're pitching, and what kind of relationship you have with that editor. I will say my cold pitches for investigative stories have been in the ballpark of, say, 800 words. If I have a relationship with an editor, it might just be an idea with a few sentences of how I'll approach the reporting. Or with all this coronavirus stuff and editors soliciting story ideas from me, I might just send it to them by text message. I mean, I tend to keep my pitches as short as humanly possible. I always say that time is the only form of currency we can never get back. Totally. So to address that second question, you know, about is it better to slow down and be thorough or to get somebody something really fast? This is where freelancers can get into trouble. If you spend a day or two pre-reporting a story that hasn't been accepted yet, or that you're not even talking to an editor about with yet. Right. So I rarely do full interviews unless I have a story assigned to me. We didn't, I were actually talking about this this week because I'd been going back and forth with an editor. They wanted me to go back again and get more information, which would have required a full interview, but I hadn't been assigned the story yet. To me, that's unpaid time. It's the quickest way to kill your business model. So I will either ask for a reporting fee, which is what Udan suggested I do this week, or you know, I'll say to them, it's probably not a good fit for them if they've had to ask me for like more information five times. My tactic is to send questions via email to a source if I'm pre-reporting or maybe have a very quick chat with them. And I'll typically read some abstracts of studies and Google the issue, but that's about as extensive as my forward planning of pitches gets. It's usually like no more than an hour for a story I haven't sold. Yeah. If there's a story, if there's a there, there, as people tend to say, pitch it. 
Cool. I think we answered that one pretty fast. Totally. Okay. So next up, this person says, I have a good amount of self-discipline, but I'm also an ideas person. So I'm always bouncing around, starting new projects instead of just plugging in and getting it done. How do I give myself structure? Dan, why don't you tackle this one first? <laughs> <laughs> My first response to this is if you're getting commission for your ideas, that's awesome. If not, then I think the first step is really capitalizing on your ideas. Yes. Good point. I think being an ideas person is a really good thing in this business of freelance writing. You just want to make sure those ideas are actually turning into paid assignments. Yes. And I will say I'm definitely someone who's usually bouncing around from lots of different assignments. So this question resonates with me a lot. What I do is every month I take stock of all the assignments that will be going through edits, ongoing reporting, or stuff that I'm just starting. Then I make a grid for every week. I'll include a sample of this in the portal if you're an all access member this week. This is what I call a work matrix. The Thursday or Friday before every week, I get out printer paper, I make a grid by hand. I take a lot of time to fill in that grid and make sure every day I'm getting some little thing done and spacing out work when I can. All my columns are a day and every row is a different assignment. And the evening before the next work day, I basically sit down and make a little bullet journal list of all the stuff that needs to get done. It's a pretty organized, multi-layered system, but it really works for me and I love it. What about you, Jenny? So this is why we can run a podcast together <laughs> because we are both equally as maybe we're both crazy organized, but for me, this question comes back to being a good manager to yourself. You know, when you're working for yourself, no one's telling you what to do. And so I think it's important to take the time to define the work that really needs to get done every week so that you're not packing too many projects into a busy week, but also so you're not working on something that's due next week and then forgetting about something that's due tomorrow, right? So I also make a to-do list bullet journal style at the top of every workday, either the morning of or the night before actually. And I order it in terms of priorities. So that way I can start, you know, at the top of the list, work my way down and it helps me to focus and avoid procrastination, especially in that moment where I think like, what do I need to do next? It's on the list. So I don't have to sort through a pile of tasks. I also think this is where getting to know yourself is really helpful. You know, in a workplace, you might have just been working based on the schedule that the workplace invokes. But when you work for yourself, you can do anything at any time and that can actually be overwhelming. So thinking about what you need to focus is really important. Like what structures do you need to be productive? You know, for example, I really like working in a quiet space when I'm drafting stories. Like I can't even listen to music with words. And if I'm working on administrative tasks or pitches, on the other hand, I'll go to a coffee shop. So I also know I definitely work best outside of my house, which is, you know, fun times right now under quarantine. We can't go out, but I typically have a co-working space membership. And when I'm there, I'm really productive. I feel much more professional. So I think I focus better. So yeah, I think just knowing these things about yourself, about your schedule is something that can help you get things done in a much more productive way because no one's going to tell you how to get the shit done. It's all on you. So let's see. This is another good one. Wudan, as a freelance journalist, I'm pretty good at basic business and administrative work. 
I track the status of all my stories in a spreadsheet and make sure my invoices are going out on time and ask for more money when an editor's proposed rates fall short of the word rate that I feel should be standard for my work. I love this. But at the <laughs> end of the day, I spend 99% of my brain energy on the squishy work of reporting and writing. I occasionally find myself thinking about the quote, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. So I wonder if there are aspects of my business or even my reporting process that I could be tracking more closely and improving. Have you guys thought about this at all? And what did you come up with? I want to be my own management consultant. There is so much going on in this question. And I mean that in a good way. I think it's amazing that you're negotiating and tracking your work. Totally. There are a lot of best practices going on in here already. (laughs) For sure. And I also don't think it's a bad thing for you to be thinking about the craft. I think this is the inevitable challenge and balance that we're faced with as creatives, but also running a business. I guess what I want to know is, you know, is that brain energy kicking in during your work hours or when you're out on a run or bike ride or whatever socially distanced appropriate workout that you're doing? If it's the former, I'd be a little more concerned. If it's the latter, I think that's actually when the best creative answers happen. I guess what I'm getting to is if you notice that your quote unquote squishy work is severely cutting into your hourly rate during work hours, that's one thing. And I think that's fairly easy for me to do the math of how much money I might be losing. I think if it's happening independently of the set aside time for work, I think that's totally natural and okay. And I kind of just let that go. Jenny, what do you have? to add to that. A lot of my creative ideas happen when I'm doing yoga or in the shower or running. And I think I've come to peace with the fact that I sometimes can't separate my work and my life as strictly as I might like, especially when it comes to thinking of ideas. Uh, I think my ideas time typically does not happen when I'm sitting at a desk, but I have spent some time tracking my days using a tool called Toggle. So I am sometimes my own management consultant in that way. And when I did that, Toggle allows you to look at how long you're spending on certain tasks. And I realized I was spending a lot of time on email a lot of time chasing and sending invoices, no surprise there, and quite a bit of time transcribing. So I will now spend money to get those things done by someone else or by a program so I can get the time back. So for example, I use QuickBooks now. It tracks invoices for me and reminds my clients that they need to pay me. So I don't have to do it. And I do transcriptions via Temi. And then I have Boomerang that loops my emails back to me to remind me of tasks. So I don't have to use brain space to remember those things. So Dan, you have an assistant, right? I think that is also a good thing to talk about here. Yeah, I do have an assistant. It makes me sound a lot more official than I actually am. So fancy. (laughs) (laughs) people were like, you must be doing really well. And I'm like, no, I'm not making as much money as I want, but I'm making enough money. And I know that if I invest in outsourcing, I'm going to have more time to do the work that gets me paid more. Mm -hmm. So yes, I did hire an assistant after I had to chase down over $5,000 in late payments owed to me last summer. My goal was to get rid of the emotional labor of chasing after money. So now I outsource it. And for my assistant, this is not emotional at all because it's not her money. I also have her read over my contracts and help draft my contract negotiations when I'm tight on time. And if I'm on the road and need some research help, I'll just send it to her so it doesn't cut into how much time I'm spending reporting and researching. Because 
what could be a simple task of finding like a few email contacts for me might take a few hours if I'm already brain dead. But for somebody else whose directed task is to do this one thing, it goes a lot faster. I love that. It makes me want to get an assistant too, (laughs) whenever you talk about this. So I do think to the person who asked this question, it is always worth taking a week to track your time spent on certain activities to see if something like hiring an assistant would be useful for you, right? If there are things that you could have someone else do and they could do faster than you so that you're not task switching all the time. So do an experiment and see what you find. All right. Last question for this episode. How do I know when it is a good time to transition from a freelance writing side hustle to freelance writing full time? For me, let's see, I think there's like a best case scenario here for me, which is a slow transition out of your full-time job. When I talk to people, I always ask if they can take their full-time job part-time to have some stability there with a job they already know how to do. And eventually when you don't have enough time for your own side hustle anymore, that's when you know you need to like reduce your hours at your full-time job or your part-time job and really lean into that side hustle. But that's not always possible. So I think sometimes if you need to jump into freelancing cold turkey, which is very common, I would recommend finding a couple gigs that will pay your bills before you cut and run from that job if you can. So a couple gigs that could pay your bills for the next one to two months. I think that gives you kind of a little bit of like mental safety net when you can jump out of your job, but also have some work already planned out. Yeah, I 100% agree with what you're saying. I would say speaking from my own experience and yours, Jenny, with getting laid off, you can't always plan like Right now, we're headed into a recession. And if you're a staffer now, it might be a very nerve-wracking time. Agreed. I think the best case scenario is not always the most likely scenario, especially when it comes to freelancing. For sure. And I always like to say there's no good time to do anything. There's no good time to move to a new city or go through a breakup or a good time to get in a serious relationship. I feel like life just has its own uncanny way about stuff like that. I think for a lot of people getting into full-time freelancing or writing, it's really about getting rid of your fears and whatever's holding you back. If freelancing as a writer is really what you want to do, I think it's a matter of getting rid of the I can'ts, but what ifs, and I'm so scared and all your other doubts. Like, I really do think this is all mental. Of course, there's a lot of stuff you can do to actually prepare yourself for this jump. Like we discussed in the first episode to set yourself up for success, decide all the things that can make you money and fast and carve time out for the writing. B comes before C in the alphabet, business, then craft. Ooh, I like that. (laughs) So, (laughs) so, you know, I do think if you wait for the right time, you might always be waiting. It's like when people ask me how I knew it was the right time to have a child, like, yeah, there's no right time. So I say be bold and do it. People say do it scared. I think that is how freelancing has always been for me. I've always moved forward despite doubts, but in my mind, I frame it as an experiment and that helps me feel like maybe I'm not making this giant permanent thing, but that I have some wiggle room to experiment and play around. (laughs) So be bold and do it, but with as much of a safety net as you can muster. Okay. So as we said at the beginning of the episode, I think there are a few questions that we didn't have time to get to, but if you sign up for that all access Writers Co-op membership on Patreon. It's $7 every month and you get access to a folder of resources. There's a bunch of stuff in there now, including a template for pitching, language that you can use to negotiate contracts, and 
some tax and LLC FAQs as well, because we get a lot of questions about those issues. So there are fabulous resources in there just waiting for you with good answers. Agreed. There's so much good stuff in there, including, I think my favorite is still the bonus episode on contract stuff. Anyway, if we didn't get to your question, feel free to DM us on Twitter or send us an email. We love talking about this stuff. All right. It's time for us to go back to coronavirus reporting. (laughs) No. Okay. Hang in there and we'll see you all in a few weeks for our next episode. Bye, Wudan. Bye, Jenny. Season one of the Writers Co-op is made possible by a grant from the National Association of Science Writers. The Writers Co-op is hosted by me, Jenny Gritters, and Wu Dan Yan, and produced by Susan Vallett.